0: Coming live from Franklin County, Massachusetts, United States is our guest tonight. Welcome to this very special edition of the KJ Masterclass Live, the show which ensures that you profit from your time spent here either with experts through their industry insights or information or simply learning from them. But before I move forward, may I request you to subscribe, follow, like and comment on whichever platform you are watching or listening. this show on and today we have got dr fleet mall president and ceo of wind horse consulting and seminars he's a business consultant he's an executive coach mindfulness teacher keynote speaker and so many things and so today we'll talk about uh, talk to him about how to move beyond blame in life and fearlessly live your highest purpose welcome to the show sir welcome to india
1: Thank you. Thank you. Great to be with you, Ajay.
0: Thank you. Thank you, sir. So the topic, you are an expert on this topic. You've got a book, Uh, you have written so much on this subject. You've talked to so many people uh, around it and, and to everybody that you interact with, whoever, whether it's business or to or to your students. So for us, if you can tell us what does this purpose thing what is this purpose in life how does how does know what is purpose and how to find it and where to find it
1: well you know that's a, it's a challenging question and uh you know we had a big online summit back in january called the best year of your life and the first day of that summit is focused around finding your purpose your vision for your life and sometimes we talk about that as our calling and, you know, sometimes our calling or our purpose finds us. I think that that it may, maybe more often it happens that way, that our purpose or our calling just comes knocking on our door through some kind of life events that get our attention, right? But right. If, if we don't, if we're at a stage in our life where we're not clear about really what our purpose is, why are we here on the planet? We're all here for a reason, right? None of us are an accident. We're all really important. We're all loved. We're all... Incredibly important. We all have so much to give, and we're all here for a reason. So if we're not clear about that, it's often helpful to do journaling and develop a daily practice of just writing reflections about what we're feeling, what we're thinking, what's important to us, what motivates us, what disturbs us, uh, what are we attracted to, and and if we do a regular practice of journaling like that, and then go back and revisit, you know. Look at, uh, peruse what you wrote over the course of a week or something. And then another week, you'll start to identify some threads of what really is important to you and what really motivates you. You know, I mean, obviously, we all have to take good care of ourselves if we're going to live well and thrive on the planet. And then for many of us, a big part of our purpose is our family and taking good care of our family and supporting our family and then our community as well. And you know, just being a, a good global citizen, participating in our global community, and a where in a way that we're adding value. So generally, you know, you could say our human purpose is to add value, and uh, our our human purpose is to grow and thrive and evolve spiritually. Uh, but then we each have our unique uh, our unique form of that. So um, you know, one of the one of the purposes that I landed on. <laughs> is to rid the world of blame and shame, to try to get blame and shame out of human society. It's just a, a little small project. Uh, but another very big focus of mine is bringing transformation to our criminal justice systems and public safety systems. Well, you know, I ended up spending time in prison myself uh, based on drug charges. So through that experience of being there for 14 years, it became really clear that one of my life purposes, was to take what I learned there and help others going through that experience and help transform our criminal justice and public safety systems so that they become places of healing instead of being destructive, in in which they are in many cases. And also the people working in those systems. I mean, our current prison systems around the world are often destructive, not only for the prisoners, but for the people that work in them. And so, you know, it became my passion to bring transformation to that world, so that's a big part of my work. But I also saw how, through that experience, uh, and and through just being in the world, I I began to really see that um, that our world society is clear. It's carrying an unsustainable load of a toxic load of of internalized blame, internalized oppression, internalized shame, and violence. And, and that is always, you know, internalized trauma. And we have this collective load of internalized shame, blame, and trauma. And that is always gonna keep erupting in cycles of violence, and, and which creates more shaming and more trauma. So somehow we have to turn that around. We have to try to prevent as many events from happening that create trauma and shame and blame for people. And we also uh, need to find ways to heal, to heal that collective trauma and so you know that kind of became my life purpose and and also uh the thing about blame in particular uh what i discovered uh uh mostly through the ending up in prison and we could talk more about that but what i discovered was that you know it's natural that we blame right because we're all very vulnerable tender-hearted human beings and we've all been blamed for things and that we don't like that it's shaming and And, you know, so we don't want any more of that. And we've been kind of educated and enculturated to believe that when something bad happens, somebody must be to blame. Somebody has to be to blame. So if I I don't want to be blamed myself, I better find somebody else to blame, right? So we almost instinctually deflect blame. And we shouldn't feel bad about that because it's just human. But the problem is that when we do that, we give our power away. So when I discovered that, that became my purpose and passion to help people see that as as normal as it is to want to blame things on other people, it's not in our own interest because we give our power away. Because when I'm upset about things, unhappy about things, I feel like I'm being victimized or I'm suffering with things and I'm convinced it's somebody else's fault. I just put that other person or persons or situation in charge of my internal state because can I control other people? No, I can't, you know, the only place I have any real influence is with myself. And that's hard enough as we know, but we cannot control other people. We can't control the world. So when I blame as normal as it is, I'm actually giving my power away. It doesn't make any sense. So radical responsibility or ownership is about choosing to put my energy where it can do the most good, which is with my own choices. Embracing that philosophically, just completely changed my life for the better. And so it became my purpose to try to get that message out to other people in any way that I can.
0: Perfectly. All right. So you have put it nicely. Now, let us go a bit back to 1985, if I'm yeah. correct. Because that's where the I would, I would say a lot of things started for you. When, when you had to uh, see prison because of drug trafficking charges now the first thing that comes to mind is that either people blame themselves or they blame them their fate did you blame your blame because through your life through your life a lot of learning can be achieved for because i see you that you a lot of people in that situation would just let their life go away from their hands and not just but you did not let that happen and that is why today that became a very distinct of of the past a point of reference and you are a symbol of you know it's inspiration today for a lot of people and and I see it that way sir and I'm very happy to talk to you today if I look at it that way because you did not let anything any setback whatever way it was to let it affect you to such such an extent in fact You used it as a stepping stone and you are where you are. And you are not only you made your own life, but you are making, you know, lives for so many other people all across the world. So my question is, did you blame yourself and how did you take it up from there?
1: Yeah, so it's a really important question. So I was fortunate and I have kind of a a mixed story, right? Because... Uh, I came of age in the 1960s, early 70s, an angry young man, uh, went headlong into the counterculture of the time, got involved in drug experimentation and eventually drug trafficking. Um, But I was always a spiritual seeker. And uh, I'd always been pursuing that uh, my whole life. And so uh, I had this kind of split life. I spent part of the time involved in that craziness of the drug world and And, you know, I also left the United States because I was angry. I was living in South America as an expatriate. And I justified, you know, being involved in that drug trafficking activity as a way to live outside the system. And also the system is hypocritical. The system's bad. And, you know, so I had all this us versus them thinking. And uh, but at the same time, I was still pursuing, you know, a spiritual path. And so they were kind of mixed up. And before I could untangle them, I earned my way into a federal prison sentence so when I was uh, sent to prison in 1985, I originally received a no parole sentence, a 30 year no parole sentence. I was 35 years old then. And it said in the paper the next day, I would be 65 years old before I had any chance of release. So I I was just, you know, I, th- I thought my life was over and I completely, you know, just torched my own life and destroyed my own life, as well as, you know, my son was, nine years old at the time and now he was going to grow up without a father and i was absolutely devastated recognizing how all the selfish decisions i've been making for so long putting my son's life at risk my family's life at risk and how i disappointed my family my spiritual teacher and my community so i was absolutely devastated but i became radically dedicated to get all the negativity out of my life and leave a better legacy for my son than just his dad went to prison or even his dad died in prison because I had no surety that I would survive my time. But something happened before I was sentenced. Um, I was, uh, you know, going to go to sentencing in the court the next day. And uh, with I was convicted of this so-called uh, drug kingpin statute. The only reason I went to trial was because I don't believe I was a drug kingpin. I was involved in drug trafficking. I would have admitted that and just put my, you know, uh, put myself at the mercy of the court for sentencing, but I didn't feel I was guilty of this other charge and it carried a no parole sentence. And I was, I could have gotten anywhere from 10 years to life. And if I got life, I would still be in prison today. So, um, you know, I was pretty anxious that night. It was a long night. I couldn't sleep. Uh, they had me in an isolation cell and, you know, right before dawn I stood up on, you know, in the cell, uh on top of this built-in kind of steel sink and toilet and there was a little window up high and i wanted to get up i just wanted to see outside and and so i could see the stars and something came over me i just felt something happen and i and i got that i sat down on the on the bunk in that cell the bed in that cell and i just suddenly felt this tremendous confidence and and certainty that no matter what happened the next day even if i got life in prison that I would not give up on myself, I would not give up on my son, and I would not give up on life. That I was not going to give up, and, I, and I'm very grateful for that moment. It was a very powerful moment. And then when I did get to prison, I realized very quickly that I was in a very negative environment, full of anger and bitterness, and and you know all the prisoners who society sees as perpetrators, they feel like victims, right? They feel. And many of them have been victimized in their childhood. Most people that end up in prison were victimized in their childhood. That's how they get there. But they also feel like, you know, their sentencing was unfair. Maybe their 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 crime partners, you know, snitched on them, their lawyer was no good. They have their whole victim story. And when you meet a prisoner, the first thing you do is you trade victim stories, right? And after I did that a couple of times, I didn't want, I didn't want to hear my own, I didn't want to hear others, which maybe wasn't very compassionate, but I just didn't want to live there. Fortunately, I'd had enough training already in the Buddhist tradition and psychology. I've been trained uh, training as a Buddhist practitioner and teacher for 10 years already. And I had a master's degree in Buddhist and Western psychology. So I had a lot of training and I recognized I didn't want to live that way. I didn't want to come out of prison. If I was lucky enough and fortunate enough to survive prison and get out someday, I didn't want to come out angry and bitter. And I didn't want to live that way in prison. So I realized that I had to focus 100% on taking ownership for having got myself into that situation, what I was going to do with it, and whether I could have a life afterwards, it was going to be completely up to me. Now, I could have easily focused on blame because, you know, I did a lot of people's time, you know, probably, you know, 30, 40 different people testified against me and didn't have to go to prison. And I, that's the way the system works. So I, I did their time. Um... And uh, when the government prosecutes you, they don't play by the rules. They break the law. They break the rules. They play hardball, right? They're just going to bury you, right? And so I could have been focused on all that. And I could have been angry and bitter and spent all my time blaming the government and blaming my lawyer and blaming you know former associates. But I just said, that, that's going to take me nowhere. So I said, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to heal my relationship to anybody I feel anger about. And I use spiritual practices from my Tibetan Buddhist tradition to heal any enmity I was holding towards anyone. And I said, I'm focusing on. I got myself in here. Only, uh, only my choices are going to get me through it and beyond it to do something with my life. So that's really where this idea of radical responsibility was born, taking 100% ownership for each and every circumstance we face in life, the ones we can see we had something to do with, but even the ones that, you know, just seem to land you know, on our head, come out of the sky. And we feel we had no relationship to it still, you know, at some point, the only really important question is what am I going to do with it? Am I going to let it take me down or am I going to choose to move forward in my life in the most creative way possible? So that philosophy of radical responsibility was really born in my experience of coming to prison and having those insights. And then by employing that, I was able to use my time in prison to create, uh, all kinds of programs to create two national organizations, to create the first hospice program in a prison anywhere, and to create two movements that are still thriving today. And you're not supposed to be able to do that from in prison. But I, I and I don't say that to pat myself on the back. I just say it, that by focusing on ownership and choice instead of blame, I was able to accomplish a lot with my life. And when I did get out, I've had nothing but opportunity ever since.
0: Right. Right. So you, at that point in time, you looked at the stars and you were thinking about the next morning and you were even ready for a life imprisonment. But then it was perhaps 15 years. It was quite less after that. How did that happen?
1: Yeah. So I was sentenced prior to 1987. I was sentenced in 1985. Okay. And so I was sentenced under what they call the old law. Because under in the U.S. federal system, they changed the sentencing laws, and they actually got rid of parole. They got rid of parole, and they went to sentencing guidelines. But fortunately, I was under the old law, so they still had parole. So if I'd been sentenced to 30 years with parole, I could have gone to the parole board after serving one-third and, and requested parole. Doesn't mean I would have gotten it, but I would have been reviewed every year from 10 years to 11 to 12. But since I had a no parole sentence, I was not eligible for parole. But also under the old law, there was a lot of what you call good time. So if you just stayed out of trouble on a sentence of my length, you got 10 days a month good time. And so on a sentence of uh, 30 years, that reduces it by a big chunk. That would be, uh, uh, that's 12 times 30, that's 3,600 uh, months. So that's 360 uh uh, months that come off. And so that's your statutory release date. And then if you stay out of trouble and keep a job while you're in prison, you get another five days a month. So that meant on 30 years, I would serve 18 and a half. Now I didn't realize that I had, I was in prison for about six months before I even figured all that out. And it was a relief to, okay, I'm, if I stay out of trouble, I'll serve 18 and a half, not 30. It still felt like forever at that time. Right. So like right. a very dark tunnel. Um, But then, of course, like everyone, I appealed my sentence, and my appeal took two or three years to go through the courts. And on appeal, my sentence was an aggregate sentence of five different charges that I was convicted of, all related to drug trafficking. Well, um, on the appeal, they knocked off one charge because I was convicted of both conspiracy and this so-called continuous criminal enterprise, which is another kind of conspiracy. They're not supposed to indict you on both because it confuses the jury, but they do it anyway. And, you know, and then on appeal, they dropped one. So that reduced my sentence from 30 to 25. So at that point, I then knew I would serve 14 and a half on 25 if I stayed out of trouble. Now, when I got to prison with my 30-year no parole sentence, that was a big deal. But within about five years, there were young men coming to prison with sentences of 40, 50, 60, 70 years for drug trafficking. And now there was no parole for anybody. Because after 1987, no parole and the good time was reduced to only 54 days a year. If you stay out of trouble, that's it, 54 days a year. So, a 10, you know, that would be 540 days on a 10-year sentence. Uh, you know, 30-year sentence would be 1,500 days, which is, you know, maybe five. So, you're going to, on a 30-year sentence, you're going to serve 25 years. And there's no way out of that. The only thing that would change that is a presidential pardon. So these young people coming into prison today with these huge sentences, they have no hope. And so prisons have become more dangerous because they have nothing to lose. They have no hope. They know they're gonna be in prison forever, no matter what, right? So anyway, I was lucky that I was sentenced under the old law and eventually I did serve, I managed to stay out of trouble and uh, and I worked hard at that because there's trouble everywhere in prison. Um, right. And uh, I worked hard at that and I, I served 14 and a half years which was still right. a long time.
0: <laughs> right right sir the po- point i wanted to bring was that you kept a very positive attitude all throughout from the very beginning
1: yes Isn't you know and i don't i was it was hard i mean i was scared when I, I was during my during my trial i spent 7 months in a in a really terrible county jail just a horrible place and I couldn't even sleep. I was having nightmares every night about going to prison, about being raped in prison. I, you know, I was I I I'd, I'd watched lots of prison movies. I was terrified of going to prison. And when I got to prison, it's a terrible environment. And you know, you have incredibly demeaning experiences with with the correctional officers and with your fellow prisoners. On a good day, you only have five or six, but it's a very negative environment, chaotic, noisy, um, and uh, very dehumanizing right and so it really takes a lot of strength not to let that take you down i was lucky that i came there with 10 years of meditation practice and training and that's what and i became even more dedicated to practice in prison you know i practiced a couple of hours of meditation every day i studied th- uh, th- sometimes more on weekends even more i st- studied the dharma and psychology three four hours a day I, my day job, I taught school. I was a school teacher. That was my day job in prison for, for 14 years. Uh, I spent my evenings and breaks uh, doing hospice care up in the hospital because this is a federal prison hospital in the middle of the AIDS crisis. Um, I was very involved in my own uh, 12-step recovery from drug addiction and alcoholism. So I was a leader in that. And I taught meditation. I led a meditation group in the chapel. So I stayed very busy. I also, you know, did exercise, got in good shape. So I kept myself really busy, but I did a lot of practice and a lot of study. And, uh, and that's what gave me the resilience and the strength to keep a positive outlook in prison. In fact, because I intensified my practice so much and because some of the inner practices of the Tibetan Buddhist tradition are so powerful, after I was in prison for two or three years, I really woke up every morning in a very, with a very cheerful mind. There was still the pain. The major pain for me was that my son was growing up without his dad and he was in Peru with his mother and I was separated from him. That was pain was always there. But apart from that, I had a positive, cheerful mind. And that came out of uh, deep meditation practice.
0: Right, right. Talking of resilience, there is a, I guess, a global resilience Summit also going on. If you can tell us about, about that, and we'll get, come back to the topic again.
1: Yeah, sure. So uh, for a number of years, I've been putting on online summits where we gather together many powerful speakers, uh, and uh, and over this one is six days long, and uh, each day we have six or seven speakers, and uh, it's free. And uh, the first day focuses on, and the overall uh, inquiry of this summit is how can we all. Uh, develop and deepen and sustain the individual and collective resilience we need to deal with, you know, the threat of climate change, the threat of nuclear war, ongoing wars and conflict, you know, all the social strife and polarization in our world today. I mean, we live in a very challenging, daunting world today. And how are we going to deal with that individually? And how can we come together? We need resilience, right? So the first day focuses on individual resilience. The second day on healing trauma and relational resilience. The third day is on community, cultural, and collective resilience. The fourth day is all about climate resilience. The fifth day is about creating resilient systems. And then the sixth day we hear from indigenous elders, indigenous wisdom holders about how to change our relationship with the earth based on ancestral and indigenous wisdom. So that's a completely free summit with 40 speakers And you can go to www.globalresiliencesummit.org, globalresiliencesummit.org, and register for free, and you can enjoy the whole summit. We're halfway through it now, but you can still enjoy a lot of it. Actually, there's still four of the six days are still available right now. And uh, it's uh, amazing presenters. So anyway, people can check that out. It's free, and it's at globalresiliencesummit.org.
0: Great, sir. Great you shared about that so that people can, you know, uh, uh, have a look and uh, learn a lot out of them. So, coming back to the 1999 part of your life, sir. You came out of prison, but within the prison itself, I guess you founded Prison Mindfulness Institute and National Prison Hospice Association. So, what are those? See, through this, I just want to understand the mindset of you know a person. A lot of people will just have very different feelings, but you were in the mode of in a very constructive mode, you were not blaming any situation or anything. And that is a very positive thing I, I see in you uh, at that point in time. And how did you think about how did you reach that particular sort of a mindset? Because it explains a yeah. lot and teaches a lot of things.
1: Well, you know, of course, had, had a lot of training and I had the very positive influence of my Tibetan Buddhist teacher, Chogyam Trungpa She, who died in 1987, two years after I went to prison but he was someone who just 24 seven dedicated himself to the betterment of humanity. And he always focused more on what is skillful rather than what's right or wrong. Not that he didn't have a sense of morality and right or wrong, but he felt it was more important what's skillful and what's not skillful, what works, what doesn't work, right? So, you know, instead of focusing in prison on, oh, that's so unjust and they can't do that. And you know, the correctional officer, the staff there, you know, I just said, okay, these are all human beings. They're here doing their job. And how can I relate with them in a way to get things done? Because I wanted to accomplish something with my life in prison. You know, a lot of people in prison, they want to sleep through their time or just kind of numb out or, you know, and that's understandable. But because I was already a practitioner, I wasn't going to throw away a big chunk of my life. I wanted to accomplish something with my life. And I was lucky that I could have a day job of teaching school. That was very rewarding, helping people get a high school degree or study for college or learn to read and uh, and learning English and things like that um, and it was very rewarding to help people learn to meditate and, and be involved in the 12-step recovery programs and then the hospice work um, but I realized if I was going to accomplish anything I had to I had to do it through being skillful right And so you know I really worked with based on my Buddhist values of being uh, self-disciplined, and also compassionate and considerate and respectful. And I just very consistently showed up and found ways to get people to respond. And it wasn't easy, but uh, we managed to, uh, through a lot of work, start the first hospice program in a prison anywhere in the world in 1987. Uh, this was the height of the AIDS epidemic and they were bringing all the AIDS patients from all over the federal system in the US to this prison. And, uh, and they were dying in horrible conditions because there weren't any of the protease inhibitors or the, the triple drug cocktail or any of that thing. And they were just having every opportunity infection you could imagine dying in horror, And there was no pain care. Also men were dying of cancer and liver disease and there was no pain medication, you know, it was horrible. And we managed to, we applied and applied and put in an application and talked to staff and, and it took about a year and a half. Well, we finally got them to say, okay, we'll try this. And we brought outside people in to train a group of prisoners to be hospice volunteers and we got that program started. And in 1988, we started seeing prisoners, uh, seeing patients. And and that was a big part of my life for the rest of my time in prison. I usually had two, sometimes three patients that I would spend my my lunch hour, my evening, my dinner hour up there helping to feed them, helping them communicate with their family, helping to bathe them. And, uh, and it was incredibly transformative uh, work to be able to put my focus on someone else's needs instead of my own and also the confrontation with one's own mortality because some of the patients i worked with who all became my friends some were older than i was some were the same age some were younger and i realized there but for the grace of uh, whatever one believes in go i right i could have easily died in prison and and some we even had two healthy hospice volunteers who were friends of mine they were regular prisoners they were hospice volunteers they got sick and became hospice patients and died there so anybody could die there and also there was violence in a prison you could die from violence so you know, so this was very transformative work. And also, you know, the meditation, uh, practice for me was so important and then teaching meditation. And I started to write about that and published it in journals on the outside. And people started writing to me because a lot of prisoners around the country were writing to various Buddhist communities and other meditation communities, yoga communities, and so forth, and, and wanting help. And, and there was no There was very little experience back then in in prison ministry among Buddhist or yoga organizations. There was an active Christian prison ministry because Christianity is the dominant tradition in the United States. But there there was very little organized. And so people didn't know what to do. So people started sending letters to me in prison. And I was actually able to communicate with prisoners in other state prisons and county jails, but not federal prisons. I couldn't communicate with prisoners in another federal prison. They didn't even like me doing the other, but they didn't stop it. And I realized, so I started, you know, sending uh, uh, letters to prisoners and I worked in the education department. There was a, cop, a copy machine there and I could copy an article about meditation and send it to them. And I knew when they get this letter, it would be very powerful for them. So I was very inspired, but I quickly realized this was not something, I it wasn't a need I could meet on my own. So I managed to start a nonprofit organization on the outside with a little help from friends and getting a little seed funding from family and friends. And uh, that started what was called Prison Dharma Network, which is still the legal name of the organization. Today, we're better known as Prison Mindfulness Institute. And uh, today, uh, that's an organization that reaches tens of thousands of prisoners all over the world on a regular basis and has uh, uh, a Path of Freedom program, a mindfulness-based emotional intelligence program that has been, uh, you know, the pandemic has kind of slowed everything down. But before the pandemic, it was in 20 states in the U.S. and seven different countries, and so that has grown to a worldwide movement. And uh, and also we're we're kind of like the the network for that movement. So we have like 180 prison mindfulness organizations that belong to our network. So we've built this huge movement of people, volunteers that bring meditation and yoga uh, into prisons and jails uh, in the U.S. and around the world. And uh, and that just grew out of that inspiration and. Uh, the same thing with the hospice program. I started publishing and writing and got some interest and 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 uh and then uh started another nonprofit to get that model that we developed there out into the world. And today there's probably 75 or 80 prison hospice programs in US state and federal prisons as a right. result of what we started back there. And so there's these two national movements that are, and even global movements, and they all came out of uh my decision to embrace radical responsibility instead of blame. Right. And then I was just at the right place at the right time and got support from a lot of people. But, you know, that's what that's where it starts from. And uh, and I'm very grateful that I made that choice to focus on on responsibility instead of blame. Right.
0: Right. So when you came out of prison in 1999, if I'm correct, then normally people would like to, you know, would would look to Build a life, rebuild a life, if they have a life at all after so many years. But I think when you came out, you had so much to look forward to. It's because of your mind, uh, the way you used your Buddhism studies, your understanding, your spiritualism, and the way you did not blame everything else, but you started building on whatever you had. Am I right?
1: Yeah, I trained myself, you know, in prison. I mean, I knew uh, once I figured out the good time and once I got a reduction on appeal. At that point, I knew that I would be almost 50 years old when I got out, that I'd be almost 50 years old. And also I had uh, uh, the Internal Revenue Service in the U.S. had a judgment against me for $300,000. So I was going to be in debt and I was going to have a record as an ex-con, a prisoner, and I was going to be almost 50 years. So pretty hard to start a life or a career that way. And I knew I really had to train myself. If I was going to have any opportunity, I had to really train myself. So, you know, I spent 14 and a half years training myself and disciplining myself as well as creating value. And so I'm fortunate when I got out of prison, I've just had nothing but opportunity ever since. In fact, the first year I was out, they wouldn't let me travel for the first six months, even out of state because I was still under supervision. But uh, but about eight months after I was out, I was invited to give a presentation at the American Psychiatric Association National Conference in New Orleans. So here I was eight or nine months out of prison presenting at a national conference. I mean, to understand the impact of that for me, because when you're in prison, you're regarded as, as less than human, right? You're a number, you're a thug, you don't count, you're less than human, right? And, and if people, if you haven't been to prison, you don't know how dehumanizing that is, right? Now, I had the spiritual strength to not let that crush me, but it still is very impactful. And then to come out and be here presenting at a national psychiatric conference, you know, that was incredibly empowering. And I've, you know, I've presented at, I don't know, 50 or 60 conferences like that in the last uh, 22 or 23 years. so. So I've had nothing about opportunity, but it came out of the training I did. I trained myself on radical responsibility. I trained myself to have a positive outlook. I trained myself to be able to choose my direction. And so when I got out of prison, it was fairly seamless, except I'll have to say, uh, when I got out of prison, I spent six months in a halfway house. So uh, I didn't anticipate how difficult that was going to be. And it was like going to jail all over again. And it was kind of destabilizing. And it's really not a supportive environment. It's supposed to be, but it's not. It's all about control. And I was lucky to not get sent back to prison, not because I was doing anything wrong, but just because the system is so messed up. Right. But the big thing when I got out of prison was how fast things were going. Like in prison, we had television, so we knew what was going on in the world. But, but, you know, I had no idea how fast things were. And I, it was, I I had hard trouble crossing a street at first. I mean, life was moving so fast. It took me a while to get used to that. Uh, But apart from that, I just had so many opportunities. I started teaching at university. So I had a 10-year career teaching at university right after I got out. I started a management consulting business based on how I'd learned to work with people. And I still do that work. Uh, and so it's been nothing about nothing but opportunity. But, you know, it really was from training myself, you know. I was inspired right. by a lot of people, uh, you know, who did prison time, uh, like, you uh, 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 like Eldridge Cleaver, like Malcolm X, like uh um like um uh you no know, the name part of my brain is faulting me right now, but Nelson Mandela. <laughs> Nelson uh, Mandela. Something. But I read I read that's the biographies of many uh activists who went to prison and how they trained themselves in prison, you know, taught themselves to read and write, taught themselves to become poets, taught themselves, you know, and so I, I knew that. If I was going to have a life beyond prison, I had to really train myself. So I did that, and it worked. And I'm very grateful for that.
0: Right. sir. in fact, in Hinduism, they say that you can uh, you can change your fate through your karma if you do good karma. And today, if you ask me, I see you as a acharya. You are a senior dharma teacher under uh, in the Buddhist in the Shambhala Buddhist community. And for me, acharya is a very very rever- revered word, even in, uh, from an Indian point of view. So I would like to see you because your life life is what you make of it. And you have shown through your your own life that you have made it in a good life and you are making the world a better place through whatever you are doing uh, at the moment. And you see today what you are doing. You are teaching a lot of a lot of business people, executives, CEOs, all top people. And I guess when they are learning from you, it is the prison party's long, long. It's, it's just like an uh, uh, almost like a uh, dream, which is long gone.
1: Yeah, just to, you know, give a, a sense of the audience, what's possible. A lot of my work today, you know, we work with prisoners around the world. But I also a lot of my work personally is training correctional officers and probation and parole officers and police. And so I'll get up in front of a room and introduce myself. And here I am, an ex con and you know, and I'm their trainer for the day, right? Mm-hmm. But that's a big part of my work today. I've I have I have done training. We have a model called mindfulness-based wellness and resiliency, teaching public safety professionals, police, first responders, uh, correctional officers, so forth, to work in ways that are less harmful to themselves, uh, to more resilience and, and don't create the trauma because there's tremendous trauma among public safety professionals. And so we, we teach them how to work in new ways, which means they're gonna have a better impact with the citizens and with people who are incarcerated. Uh, but anyway, that's I, I spend several days every week working with them. And I've trained probably at this point, four or 5,000 uh, public safety professionals in mindfulness and wellness and resiliency. And who would have ever thought that a prisoner would end up training correctional officers, right? But that's yeah. what's possible, that's what's possible uh, through the power of uh, radical responsibility, letting go of blame and and realizing that blame—it's not—we don't have to blame ourselves for blaming, right? I mean, it's right. just human. Right. But we just need to realize it's inefficient; it's just kind of a wasted effort, you know. Uh, it doesn't do anything. But if I embrace, what are my choices? We say you know, the, what what I call the magical radical responsibility question is any situation I'm in, no matter how terrible it is or how unjust or how unfair, or maybe my boss is a tyrant or, you know, it's just a terrible, terrible situation. And if I can just ask myself this simple question, what can I do? What can I do? That gets me out of the victim mindset even if I really am being victimized, it gets me out of the victim mindset and gets me back into what I call the co-creative mindset, because there's always a million things we can do. There's so many different ways we can approach any person or any situation. And so if I keep thinking, what can I do? Where are my options? Where are my choices? What's the most creative way I can respond to this to move my life forward in, and with others in a good way, right? So that, that question, what can I do? Or if we're part of a team, what can we do? What can we do? That shifts me into solution-based thinking and creative thinking, right? Instead of going, you know, oh, I can't do anything and it's so horrible and I'm a victim and it's so unjust and all that may be true, but what does it do? It just takes me down, right? So we shift to, okay, what can I do? This is really tough. This is hard. Maybe this is unjust, but what can I do? What's the most creative thing I can do to make it better?
0: So can you tell us more about this? Radical responsibility model that you have, sir, so that you know our audience can understand what exactly. See, you are yeah. a very, you are a tough man. You have a, you are a spiritual man. You could come out through those times, but uh, but not everybody is like you, and there will be only very few of you, perhaps in in day-to-day life. But how can they, as lesser mortals, how can they deal with uh, the situation? Yeah. Whatever tough situation that
1: they are in. Yeah, I mean, I'm like anybody else. I'm an ordinary human being. I get caught up in blaming. I have all the same struggles as anybody else. But I've learned not to get caught there, not to get lost there, to continually shift, come back to, come back to, right? And radical responsibility, I say, it's voluntarily embracing 100% ownership or responsibility for each and every circumstance I face in life including the ones I can see I had some relationship in creating or allowing, which very often I did have some relationship to it. But even the ones that feel like they just landed, on, they just fell out of the sky and landed. I mean, everybody would agree I'm innocent, you know, and I had nothing to do with it. But still at some point the same question is, what am I gonna do with it? Am I gonna let it take me down? Or am I gonna find some creative way to respond to it, right? So it's living at choice. It's focused on what are my choices? Instead of buying into the idea that I don't have choices, because we always have choice, you know, Viktor Frankl, who wrote the book *Man's Search for Meaning*, uh, you know, was a, 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 a psychiatrist of Jewish background who whose whole family was sent to the to the death camps in World War II and the Holocaust, and he himself was in Auschwitz, the most infamous death camp of the Nazi Holocaust, and he was a psychiatrist and a thinker. So he was reflective and he was seeing that some people are surviving and some people are dying quickly. And, and, uh, and, you know, he wanted to survive and, and he discovered, uh, he discovered two really important things about life. He discovered one, the people that were surviving had some vision for a future. They had a will to live They had, for some of them. They just wanted to get out and testify to what happened there, to the truth of what happened. He would envision being back in his life, you know, completing his his academic work and his papers and presenting at conferences as a psychiatrist and a researcher, and he kept envisioning a future, and that kept him going. But the other thing he discovered was, even in the worst situation you could ever imagine, and being at Auschwitz in a Nazi death camp is about as right. bad as it gets. Starving, emaciated, in the cold with hardly any clothing in the middle of a Polish winter, you know, it, it's hardly you can't imagine anything worse. Maybe a, maybe a guard even has a gun pointed at your head. He said, even in that situation, we still have choice. We still have choice. And we we may not even choose to live or die because maybe the guard's going to pull the trigger. But we have a choice on the attitude we bring to that situation, right? If we're going to die, we can die like Gandhi died, you know, with God, the word of God on his lips, you know. And, uh, you know, we can choose how we die if we're going to die. But, you know, mostly it's choosing how to live and we can choose the attitude we're gonna to bring to situations. We always have choice. Nobody can take that choice away from us. Now it can be a tough choice because if we've been choosing the victim mindset our whole life, it's gonna be hard to change that like that. So we need to start practicing with the little things in life, the little things in life and realizing when I'm getting a little irritated. So, okay, what's really going on there? What, where's my choice, right? Because if we practice with the small challenges of life, when we get hit with the big challenges, Then we'll have the wherewithal to embrace choice instead of falling into the victim mindset and letting life take us down instead of being able to, you know, stay on our feet and uh, and and, you know, bring value to life. And, you know, life is not going to get any easier. Clearly, with climate change and climate disruptions, life is going to get very challenging all over the world. And we need more resilient people and uh, and we get resilient through ownership. And uh, so, you know, that's obviously something I'm very passionate about. But I see so much of people's well-intended efforts at social justice and social change. They're well-intended, they're concerned about the same suffering and injustice I am, but their strategies are based in blaming and shaming. And I don't think it helps. I think it just keeps the cycle of, of, of conflict and suffering going. So I am passionate about getting across this idea that real transformation and the transformation we need to do together comes through ownership, not blame. And that's another important thing about um, the radical responsibility model, because some people, when they first hear about it, well, they say, well, that sounds like blaming yourself. Okay. You're not going to blame anybody else. That means you're blaming yourself. No, this model is getting beyond blame altogether. It has nothing to do with blaming others, obviously but it has nothing to do with blaming myself, nothing. And it certainly has nothing to do with blaming victims. When I look into situations to see if I had a role in the situation, that's not to blame myself, that's just for learning. Because if I can see, okay, I'm here and I don't like it, and here were the steps to get there, and I get that insight of my part in that, then I go, oh, I'll do it different next time. I learned something, I have insight. I could have taken a right instead of a left, right? And so I'm going to do it different next So it's only for learning, never for blame, right? And and it's all about embracing choice and really personal power. Radical responsibility could be called radical self-empowerment because I'm choosing to place my energy where it can do the most good with my own choices and my own actions. But it's not about blaming myself. And in fact, the radical responsibility model is grounded in deep self-compassion. You know, the first chapter of the Radical Responsibility book is about embracing the idea of innate basic goodness that all human beings have innate basic goodness that we're not broken we don't need fixing that we have an inner wholeness that has been called buddha nature or krishna nature or christ nature it's our innate divinity goodness and wholeness we're not broken now on the surface yeah we have lots of challenges right but then the depth of our being we're not broken and we can feel that depth through meditative practices we can drop into below the surface and into that depth and realize I am okay. And experience that innate wholeness, goodness, sacredness, divinity. And we can experience that. And that gives us tremendous strength. And then a the second uh, chapter is all about having a mindfulness practice, developing more awareness so we can actually see how our mind works and see how the connection between thoughts and feelings and behaviors and how all our habitual patterns and our psychology and conditioning works because we have to see it to get free from it. And we do all of this with self-compassion and self-acceptance. So it has absolutely nothing to do with blaming ourselves. But we've all been inculturated into this idea that somebody's always going to be blamed. It's not true. We can step out of blame altogether. So radical responsibility has nothing to do with blame. Not blaming others, not blaming myself, and not blaming victims. It's all about living at choice and putting my energy where it can do the most good, which is with the choices I make every day.
0: Okay. Okay. So if if there is something which is happening in one's life uh, they just how do they just build up they just say okay i'm not blaming myself i'm not blaming anybody else but then what does he do he or she
1: well if you know if something in our life is not working right first we can get really honest and look okay what is my contribution to that not to blame myself but to learn like how did i get into that situation because if I can learn how I got into it, I can learn how to get out of it or avoid it next time. So that's purely for learning, not for blaming oneself. There's no reason to feel we're all human beings. We're all doing our best. Life is hard, right? We all, you know, we all got what we got as children and it was a mixed bag for all of us. We get a lot of negative conditioning and we, you know, the human, the human condition is we start off as these very fragile beings and then we try to paste together some sense of self just to survive in life. And, you know, it's a fear-based construct that most of the spiritual traditions are about moving beyond. But first, we have to have an integrated self to begin with. And a lot of us, because of childhood traumas, aversive childhood experiences, we have a lot of struggles. We have a lot of conditioning. We have like a lot of faulty wiring in our nervous system. So we need to embrace, okay, I could blame my parents for that. But then I'd have to blame their parents and their parents. And it's just a human condition. So instead, okay. if I have problems, I need to heal myself. I need to do self-healing. I need to do meditation. I need to maybe get involved in some kind of therapy, whatever, okay. whatever I need to do. And, and then, okay, I need to train myself to make better choices, right? And so I train myself to live at choice and, and get the help I need to heal myself if I need help healing myself and develop some kind of awareness practice that lets me understand how the mind works and how the mind-body is connected and how life works. Right? We need to education is the answer to everything, right? If we if we don't educate ourselves and we don't have some kind of awareness practice, it's like we're walking through life blindfolded, right? And exactly. and of course we're gonna we're gonna just constantly run into things, right? So we need to be awake and aware, and we need to educate ourselves and train ourselves, and that for me that's what being a human being is all about. I feel like a human being is about being in training until the day I die. And I'm, you know, I'm training to die, because we're all gonna die. We don't know what happens when we die. Different philosophical and religious traditions have different ideas. You know, personally, I feel there's probably multiple lifetimes that we go through. But, you know, regardless, uh, how we die is very important. And, you know, if I wanna die well, I need to train myself to die well. But to me, it's about being in training, always evolving, growing, thriving, right? As human beings, we're, we're conscious beings. We're conscious beings and we're, we have the wherewithal to continually evolve and grow and, and experience life in its great fullness and add value to, uh, to life, add value to our family, to our community, right? So challenging ourselves to, to, you know, be the very best we can be, but also doing that with compassion because life is hard and we're doing our best, you know, and, uh, and we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna go have ups and downs, right? And so beating ourselves up doesn't help at all. But focusing on how can i keep growing how can i keep growing what's what's the way forward right right right
0: in fact living uh, live fearlessly and die fearlessly absolutely isn't it okay okay sir. so the bigger question now is how when do you start finding your purpose the highest purpose in your life what is the time uh, for it does it come to you or uh, as you said but not everybody is so lucky
1: I, yeah, I well, I, I think, again, it's, it's about, um, I think it's very helpful to develop some kind of awareness practice where we spend time just being quiet, listening, some kind of meditation, right? I also mentioned before a journaling practice, writing. The combination of those two things will get us more in relationship with ourselves to understand ourselves, and I think in that way, our purpose in life will emerge, it may emerge subtly, slowly over time, or may just suddenly, you know, arrive. But, you know, it's about, you know, developing an inner life, you know, listening to ourselves inwardly, listening to our heart, you know, listening to our feelings. And, and so both journaling, writing, and meditating, some kind of meditation practice will help us, I think, discover what our purpose is. And if we're not sure, we can also just get out and start serving because there's so much you know every there isn't a community in the world where we live that doesn't need help where there aren't people that need help so we can just get out and start serving and see what calls us right we can try this and try that we can get involved in in feeding the hungry or we can get involved in feeding visiting people who are sick and or visiting people who are dying or or working with children or supporting people in prisons or We just try different things until we find, oh, this is, this is mine. This one. Yeah, I feel this. This is me. Right. Yeah.
0: Right. sir. Right. A lot of, lot of things you have shared. Uh, Now, my last question is, sir, how do you look back at your life as, as you, uh, from where you are now from?
1: Yeah. Well, I think there's, there's two, there's two basic ways uh, that I see that and feel about that. On the one hand, I have no regrets. It's, my life path has been my life path, and I've learned a lot from it, and it, it's produced who I am today. Everything I'm able to, I'm grateful to be able to bring some value to the world today and have opportunities to share and 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 bring value to others' lives. I'm incredibly grateful for that. It's a profound honor to be able to do that. and uh, And all that is based on my whole life experience, every bit of it, right? At the same time, I know that along my life path, I caused harm. And so I have a lot of regrets about that. I have a lot of regrets that my son grew up with his dad in prison. I have a lot of regrets that I was involved in drug trafficking. And uh, I know that that the drugs cause harm to people. So I have a lot of regrets about any harm that I caused to anyone along my life path. And at the same time, on another level, I have no regrets about my life because it's created the person i am today and what i have to offer
0: lots of philosophy involved in what you are saying sir lots of it but as they say life is what you make of it and you have made it a very very wonderful life not only for yourself but a lot of people across the world on this note sir it's a wrap on this edition of the kj Masterclass. thank you so much for joining us
1: Thank you, Ajay. It's a privilege and honor to be able to be with you and your audience today. Thank you, sir. Thank you.